And uh, yeah, if you're new or visiting today, we've been marching through the letter of Paul to the Philippian church. And we have about five or six weeks left. And it's been great. What an amazing letter. This is like one of the best letters of Paul, I think. Um, they're all good, but it's just so good and so encouraging. And our, our series that we've been reflecting in has been titled Joyfully Pressing On in the Gospel. And that pressing on language we're going to get to, and that's next week. Um, but really, this whole letter, is that's really what it's about. It's about this church coming together in unity and joy, pressing on for the sake of the gospel in their context. So it's been awesome. So we're going to keep doing that this morning. I will be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes there comes an opportunity or, or something that, that, that awakens a passion within you. Like, um, if, if you hear about someone who's never read Harry Potter, you go, wait a minute, what? And you kind of get, like, fired up for a minute. And, and this is what usually people say. Tell us how you really feel, Nick, right? When something, like, comes up in you that you, maybe you didn't even realize how, how passionate you were about this thing, and it just spills out, and you're like, oops. And they're like, tell me how you really feel. This morning, we're going to get a little of that from Paul. Tell us how you really feel, Paul. Um, if you haven't noticed, Paul is pretty passionate about the gospel. That's his thing. If you were to assign a thing to Paul, it would be the gospel. And in this letter to this church, he's inviting them to live out the same passion for the gospel in their context. And the tone of this letter is actually, for the most part, one of encouragement, one of friendship. It's super lighthearted and positive. But if you've read a few of Paul's other letters, like Corinthians or Galatians, you may have noticed that he can get pretty intense. And this stems from his passion for the gospel. He's so into it that it spills out of him. And it's his passion for the gospel, but it's not just the gospel. It's the right gospel, the right one, the pure one, the real one. There are few things that make Paul more angry than someone teaching a distorted gospel. We're going to catch a whiff of that intensity today. And so for us, who are pretty far removed from even the specific issue that he gets fired up about, but I'm hoping that today we can gain a greater clarity on the importance of a pure and right gospel, of the real gospel, as well as some tools to distinguish the real gospel from a host of other gospels that are clamoring for our devotion and our attention and our belief. But before we dive into our passage today, I would just want to 
give a quick rundown of a couple concepts that are embedded here that if you aren't up on them, it might be a little confusing. So the first aspect is it's part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and that's circumcision. Yeah, (laughs) circumcision. After Abraham had been walking with God for over 20 years in loyalty, in trust, in obedience, God gave him the sign of circumcision, which he received at the age of 99. Ouch. It was to be a sign of the covenant that existed between God and him and his descendants after him. It marked them as the people of God. But God made it clear that circumcision, sort of like baptism for us, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. That just as you would ritualistically cut off this excess flesh from your body, God desires the circumcision of your heart. The the cutting off of the part of your heart that is rebellious to him, that doesn't want anything to do with him. That's what circumcision was to illustrate. And so we're going to come back to circumcision a little bit later. Aren't you excited? But let's move on to another aspect of God's covenant with Abraham. So first we got circumcision, but then we have something else which was even earlier than circumcision given to Abraham as a promise, and it was this, the blessing of the nations. And and when you hear the word nations, you should also think of the word Gentiles. Because Gentiles, when you read it in the New Testament over and over and over again, all it means is nations. And back in Genesis 12, when God originally called Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to give you, make you a nation. I'm going to give you a land. And I am going to bless the nations through you. And so part of God's original promise to Abraham, the original Jew, was that through his offspring, God would bless every nation on earth. And so, over a thousand years later, after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through and after David and Solomon, when Israel's kingdom is divided, when they go into exile and hope seems to be lost, God still has that plan for them. He still wants them to be and become a blessing to the nations. And so God continues to move them toward this fulfillment of this original promise. Listen to the words of Isaiah when he speaks of Jesus, who's the servant of the Lord who is to come, and as Isaiah 53 says, to bear our iniquities. This is the same servant God is talking to, and he says this, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. And then he says this, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so 
from Genesis through the end of the Old Testament, God is telling a story. And it's a story that's parallel. There's the people of God in the nation of Israel's story, which is tumultuous and, and heartbreaking and yet encouraging because God is not finished with them over and over again as we saw in Psalm 78. But then there's the parallel and consistent plan of God to bring a light to the nations that all people would experience the salvation of God. And so, from the beginning, God's plan was to bless the nations through the offspring of Abraham. But, as we see from Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament, the Jews spent hundreds of years differentiating themselves from the nations. And part of this was through the sign of circumcision and also keeping of the holy days and keeping kosher laws and all these things that kept them separate from the nations. And then it wasn't really clear how or when this blessing of Abraham was going to come into effect. What was it going to look like? And so then the New Testament opens. And all of a sudden, God did something in Jesus that brought the blessing of the nations overnight or over a weekend. On Friday, the blessing of the nations had not been, but then Sunday came and all of a sudden, the blessing of the nations gets thrown wide open. And so God's plan to include the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations, into the people of God without them needing to become Jewish happened so fast and so unexpectedly that not even the original disciples got it for a long time, for a number of years. And suffice it to say, this, this unification of the people of God was messy. And it was messy for a while. Many Jewish Christians who, who came to understand Jesus as their Messiah, they didn't like that the Gentiles could get saved and not have to keep the Mosaic Law. And not have to get circumcised, not have to observe the holy days, not have to restrict their diets, and the list goes on. And so, right at the start, one of the original heresies was born. And what was that? The Jesus and gospel. I'm sure you can guess what Paul thought of a Jesus and gospel. Let's take a look. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Let's pray. Dear Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that your word and your spirit would speak boldly to our hearts this morning. To wherever we are at, whoever we are, whatever background we have, Christian or not, that you would speak to us in the only way you can, intimately, specifically, tenderly, gently, invitationally. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we learn a couple of things about the right gospel here in these verses. And the first couple of things we're going to learn is that the gospel is simple and the gospel is inclusive. But firstly, the gospel is simple. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The Philippian church was started around 50 AD. And this was really soon, within a year or so, after this issue of whether or not Gentile Christians had to get circumcised was debated. This, was, this came up almost immediately. In Acts chapter 15, you can read about it. There's a council met in Jerusalem, the, the headquarters of the church. This issue, do Gentile Christians who are being saved in Asia and, in, and then what was to become Europe, are, are, are these Christians required to keep the things that our people have been keeping for thousands of years? Do they have to as well? Good question. And the issue was, was debated, and then it was settled, and then it was confirmed by all the apostles. The verdict was this. The Gentile Christians did not need to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses in order to be obedient to their new Lord, Jesus Christ. Period. End of story. End of debate. But... You know, just because the issue was settled did not stop a cohort of teachers, what are called Judaizers, they call it, to follow Paul around to these, to these churches, to these towns, to try to convince these new Gentile Christians otherwise. Yeah, yeah, you've got Jesus, but Guess what? In order to be incorporated into the people of God, there's some other things you got to do. This drove Paul bananas. Nuts. And if you read the book of Galatians, as we studied a few years ago, you'll see just how strongly he feels about maintaining a true grasp of the simple gospel. In Galatians 6, 
He says this. Where is it? He says, those who are trying to get you, Gentile Christians, to be circumcised, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. He says, they've taken the knife to themselves already in circumcision. Why don't they just finish the job? He feels strongly. So Paul here now is writing to this Philippian church. Ten years later, you know, after the Council of Jerusalem, he's writing to them. And it's great because it doesn't seem like... as opposed or in contrast to the Galatian church, it doesn't seem like they've bought into this lie. That they haven't bought into this false gospel like other churches had. But that doesn't mean he doesn't feel the need to warn them of the dangers of a distorted gospel. And so he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And then he moves on to the warning. He says, I'm, I'm writing the same things to you. It, it doesn't bother me to repeat them, and it's actually safe for you to hear this warning again. But he opens with a positive note. Rejoice in the Lord. You know, we've seen this theme of rejoicing and joy over and over again in this letter. And there are many ways to distill down the essence of the gospel. And this, this is one of them. Rejoice in the Lord. That is, that is a great, succinct way to say the gospel. And it, it contains two beautiful elements of gospel truth, which is firstly that we can rejoice. That, you know, in this, during this past winter, I don't know about you, but it was easy to feel like there wasn't much to rejoice in. And the winter just kept going and going, and then we get a little, little hint, a little taste of the sun, and then the next day it's cold and rainy again. You can see your breath, and you're like, no, why? But then last weekend happened, and this coming weekend is coming. The sun is coming out. There is a reason to rejoice, but the truth of the gospel is that no matter the weather, No matter the weather outside or the weather inside, there is always a good reason to rejoice. But second, Paul directs our rejoicing. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Turn your rejoicing to the one place where it always makes sense, where it's always appropriate to rejoice in Jesus. The trouble with distorted Gospels is that our attention, our happiness, our fulfillment is directed someplace else. And then in verse 3 of this passage, we see that it's not just our rejoicing that's rooted in Christ, but also it says our glorying, which means boasting, which is where we place all of our weight of life. In Christ Jesus alone. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. But then he opens up with a warning. He says, okay, okay, I know I've told you these things before, but it most definitely won't hurt if I just give you just another heads up. And then he dives in head first. Verse 2. Look out 
for the dogs. This comes out of nowhere. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The word is actually, look out for the mutilation. And the important thing to, to learn about this command, this, this warning here, is the irony in what he's saying. You know, he is speaking of Jewish Christian teachers. And so he brings up dogs, evil workers, and mutilation. You know, these are all things that are deeply offensive, deeply insulting to someone of Jewish heritage. But Paul here, he doesn't pull any punches. He writes these labels in Sharpie and he pats them right on the back of these teachers. Those who would seek to convince Gentile Christians to take on Jewish identity markers. He says, "Uh uh-uh. He exposes what they are doing and he does it in stark terms. Firstly, in seeking to to help Gentile Christians to become clean, these Jewish Christians were as unclean as dogs. And if you were to ask a Jew in the first century how clean, ritualistically, a dog is, they would just go, unclean. Dogs are unclean. And sometimes they'd even refer to Gentiles as dogs. This is an unclean animal. So you who are trying to to convince these these Gentile Christians to do what you want them to do, you're a dog. Yikes. And then, secondly, in seeking to do a good work in bringing Gentile Christians into their identity as the people of God, what they're actually acting is as evildoers. No, they're trying to work good. They're trying to do the right thing. And Paul says, no, no, no. You're an evildoer. You are a worker of evil. And then lastly, he gives the heaviest insult when he says, in circumcising these Gentile Christians, what you're actually doing is mutilating them. And you're mutilating them like the pagans would have done. This is not of God. So Paul, he's been dealing with this this cohort, this false teaching for 10 years. And so he says, look out, three times. Look out, look out, look out. Why is he so intense? You know, why does this get under his skin so deeply? Is it because he's against circumcision? It's actually not. He's not actually against circumcision. You know, if you look at his practices in the book of Acts, he has no problem with circumcision for Jewish Christians. He's pretty neutral on it. In Galatians 6, he says, Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He's not bothered by circumcision per se. But what he does have a problem with is this. Adding to the simple gospel of Jesus. That's what he hates. He has a problem with religious people making it difficult for people unlike them to access Jesus. That's what he hates. 
He has a problem with anybody else being Lord over people's lives other than Jesus. And the truth is, we can fall into the same distorted gospel. Especially if in the same breath as as proclaiming Jesus as Lord, we move on to describe the importance of looking like us, thinking like us, talking like us, being like us. That's detracting from the simple gospel. And Paul has words for that. So the gospel is simple. Secondly, the gospel is inclusive. Look at verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul He's a Jew, born and raised, very much Jewish. He's writing to this church, the Philippians, Gentiles. What does he say? He says, you Philippians, Gentiles, me, a Jew, we are the circumcision. We are together. A ritual act that has historically separated the people of God from the nations. It gives way to a spiritual act that unites the people of God who come from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Paul, in essence, says here, do you remember, soon after God gave the sign of circumcision, how he said, I want the circumcision of your heart. In Deuteronomy, he says, that's what I want. I want the circumcision of your heart. And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah calls out the people of Israel and says, you who have been circumcising your baby boys for hundreds of years, you are uncircumcised in heart. And so Paul here is saying, this circumcision of the heart is here now. It's here now, and it's available to all people. Jew and Gentile can now be fully united, not in ritual, but in Christ. Praise God. In this unity we have, he says, we are the circumcision. It's rooted in Jesus Christ. He says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, we hear a lot about unity these days, especially in words like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Unity is in vogue right now. It is popular. And for the most part, that's good. And of course, these are some of the most hotly debated political issues of our time. These Jewish false teachers were promoting inclusion too. As long as you adopt this external ritual, as long as you look like me physically, as long as you live your life like me, but the unity that exists in the gospel of Jesus is rooted in one simple thing. Jesus. Jesus is who we glory in. 
Paul says. That word means boast. And so we, Paul says, Jew and Gentile, we, all of us from different backgrounds, we can hold our heads up high in the fact that Jesus Christ has made us all one. It doesn't matter your race, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your sexual orientation, what you've done, what you've said, what you've thought, or any other background. If you've submitted yourself to Jesus as Savior and Lord, you're united with the people of God across time, across geography. Jesus has made us one. That's the foundation of our unity. That's what created it. And that is something worth glorying in. We don't have to create it. He made it for us. And this unity that Jesus purchased by his blood, it leads to what? Paul says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We do it alongside one another. And that word for worship, he's not just talking about singing. It's the word for serving. Serving God together. We can serve in the trenches together because we've been united by the Spirit of God. Sure, we can know in our heads that Christ's work unifies us, but it's the Holy Spirit who empowers us with love for one another. The resources to repent when we screw up and to forgive when others hurt us. And the creativity to minister to Seattle. The creativity to minister to wherever God has called us. And Paul finishes this beautiful description of the gospel with this kicker. And put no confidence in the flesh. This is really it. This is typically what distorted gospels come down to. Am I trusting in Jesus or am I trusting in myself? You know, he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. And so we've seen that the, the right gospel is both simple and it's inclusive but now Paul turns and he goes a direction that's interesting. He, he offers a couple examples here in the next few verses of the wrong Gospels. Let's look at those verses in verses 4 through 6. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I love Paul. He's awesome. He's, he is the perfect apostle to the Gentiles. Why? Because he's such a top-shelf Jew. He says, okay, 
Okay, you Jewish Christians who want to spoil the simple gospel for these Gentile believers. Okay, you want to play that game now, don't you? I can play. You want to boast in yourself? I have a better self. And so Paul goes there. He tries a couple of false gospels on for size. First, we see the gospel of pedigree. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, these first three characteristics are not in Paul's control. (laughs) Unless he's seven days old going, hey, dad, don't forget to circumcise me tomorrow. No. He was circumcised on the eighth day because of his parents. He was of the people of Israel because he was. Nothing he had done. He's the tribe of Benjamin. He had status handed to him. He was set up for success. He had the right pedigree. You know, we can get swept up in this too. You know, we're not so far removed from this. You might have had rock star parents. Or you might, have, you might be proud of your upbringing. Or you might have had an awful childhood with absent or abusive parents. God, he wants all of your story. And so he cares about all of that. He cares about those things, but he doesn't want to relate with you through your parents. He wants to relate with you directly. He wants to start fresh with you. You know, he doesn't really care about pedigree, whether it's a bummer or a good one. And then Paul says, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so with that, he transitions from the gospel of pedigree to the gospel of performance. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so the last three of these characteristics display the performance of Paul, the top shelf Jew. You know, first he was a Pharisee. And of course, Pharisees get a bad rap, and that's for good reason. But it was the Pharisees who were religiously devoted to God's law. They were devoted to it. They memorized it. They sought to accomplish and achieve and and obey every of the 613 commands of God's law. Jesus' problem with them wasn't that part. It wasn't the part that loved God's law. It was the, the large parts of the law that they missed. Jesus said, you tithe mint and rue and your herbs, but you neglect justice. And you neglect the love of God. How is checking all your boxes going to fulfill those parts? Huh? They got lost in the trees and missed the forest. They checked all the boxes and lost the heart of what God wanted from his people, which was pretty simple. Love of God and love of neighbor. And so he was a Pharisee as to the law. And then he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You know, Paul was so 
zealous, so passionate, so driven for the law of his God that when an offshoot of Judaism that seemed to be out of line, who's this guy? Jesus, he was crucified. That basically means he was cursed. He, he was hung on a tree. Like, this doesn't seem to be right in my eyes, Paul thought. And so I'm going to stamp it out. He was driven. He was motivated by a love for God's law, a passion for it. And so he went after Christianity with all of his being. That's his zeal. And then lastly, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you were to look at Paul's life, you would have had a hard time finding fault with him. He crossed every T. He dotted every I in his devotion to the law. Now, when he says blameless here, he's not claiming to be sinless because the law of God provided what it took to cover your sin. He's saying, I followed the law to the T and it covers all my sin. I did everything right. So a lot of us are box-checking Christians. I'm a box-checking Christian. It's easy for me to fall into that mindset. You know, we pray earnestly, God, give me the boxes you want me to check, and I will check them. And then when we feel like he's given us uh, some boxes to check, we say, sweet, thanks, God, I'll take it from here. I don't really need to spend time with you. I'm busy boxing, excuse me, checking the boxes you've given me to check. But these false gospels, the gospel of pedigree, the gospel of performance, when we embrace them, you know, we might fool some people. We might even fool ourselves. But Whenever our happiness or our trust or our hope, our security, whenever that is rooted in ourselves, we've embraced a false gospel. You know, thankfully, God is so good and so faithful that he shows us the failure of those false, false gospels every time. You know, the true gospel says... Yes, you can be happy. Yes, you can be glad. But it's only in one person. Yes, you can have hope. Yes, you can have peace. Yes, you can have security. But it's only in one person. The true gospel says, yes, we can boast. We can glory. We can be confident. But it's only in one person. It's always good. It's always good to ask ourselves, you know, have I been embracing the right gospel? Or some version of a Jesus and gospel? You know, for me, it's a Jesus and what I can do for him gospel. Or a Jesus and how I feel about myself gospel. But the right gospel is pure, it's simple. 
It's truly and miraculously inclusive. And it's better than any false gospel that we can come up with ourselves. You know, if you've been crafting your own way to please God, you can confess that this morning. You can give that to Him. One of the most beautiful things about God is that He knows every little thing that motivates us. We can't hide behind our checked boxes. We can't hide behind our feelings. We can't put on a face with him when inside we're hiding from him. And yet, despite him knowing all of those icky details that are inside of us, he loves all of us. When we divulge every last prideful, lustful, selfish, broken corner of our hearts, God invades those places. He invades those places with his transformative spirit and his transforming love. Even those places, even those things that you have not told one person, he can get in there and resurrect that area of deadness. What a wonderful God. That's the beauty of the simple and true gospel. It's always here. It's always available for you. So let's together this morning rejoice in, glory in, and put our confidence in this wonderful gospel of the triune God. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. We thank you. We praise you. We, we just want to put all of our weight on you this morning because you can take our weight. You said the government will be on your shoulders. And so we put all of our hopes and dreams in you. Lord, forgive us for putting our hopes and dreams in ourselves. Forgive us for putting our hopes and dreams in politics. Forgive us for putting our hopes and dreams in the flesh. When you've always been there. Your gospel is so real that it just beats every other thing that we can craft. So we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would invade each of us this morning. I pray for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit in each of our hearts. As Paul prayed in Ephesians that we would be able to, by your Spirit, know the love of God. By your Spirit, that we would know the power and the presence of God. Not just today, not just this morning as we praise, as we sing, as we fellowship, but tomorrow, Monday, even if the rain comes back, even if it gets cold again, we have reason to hope. We have reason to rejoice. 
We give you these things. We give you our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.